Good morning. It's great to be together with one another, uh, to rejoice in the Lord and His goodness to us. We're going to read words this morning uh, from Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 8. You can find them on page 9 in your booklet. Uh, before we do that, I want to give a, little, a few pieces of context. Um, it's a joy to be with you, not just because we have to look at God's Word, but also because this place is very historic and enjoyable for, for me. I was on staff at uh, Christ Community, as Nate mentioned, as you can read. There's a room that few of you probably know about, but if you go up these stairs, and then you go up the stairs one more time, and when you think you're already at the top, you go upstairs one more time, and there's two doors, which are probably storage now, unless somebody from Cornerstone has been banished to Siberia. That was my office, and we called it the Pigeon Penthouse, because pigeons and I shared that room together. My wife and I also got married, and uh, I believe now it is uh, level one, parking spot 21 and 22 in the former sanctuary known as very bad light blue carpet with stains, as well as bright Tennessee orange, which had then faded to the burnt orange of the University of Texas. So does anybody here remember that building? A few of you guys were actually at that amazing event. It's great to be here because this is a church, a local expression, a congregation that has been a, a great support to us. And even that's been alluded to this morning, uh, the first church that actually said financially, Craig, when you begin this new ministry, we'll support you. Uh, I had several people even this morning say, we pray for you personally, and I don't know them. This church prays in different ways that Nate has explained to me, and I can only assume he's telling the truth. Uh, that's huge. And not only that, friendship uh, that I share with many of you from up close and others from afar, but you know, Nate's one of the, the brothers who I could call, or he can call me, and within 24 hours, we're sitting down together. That's, that's a great joy. And so to be in this place this morning to see uh, quite a few familiar faces, other faces that aren't as familiar, but seem friendly for the most part. I hope you feel the same way towards us uh, at the end of our time together this morning. The context also of the passage we're going to read is coming out of Pentecost, which is where we've been in this congregation preaching. That's where Nate was last week. And there's this very di this dynamic that's happening. And the dynamic that's happening among the churches, they're gathered People from all these different you know, nations and groups are gathered in Jerusalem. The Spirit is poured out upon them, and then they're scattered back to their countries. But as they're scattered, they're still gathering in homes. They're enjoying the breaking of bread. They're enjoying the apostles' teaching. You know, this, it's this idyllic-seeming world. And yet they're also being scattered back out, and they're doing that same repetition out. Can you see that? This morning, we're going to read uh, beginning the next spreading, the next scattering, and it actually is due to the first martyrdom that takes place after Jesus has lived this life, died this death, been risen from the dead, and then returned to his Father and to heaven as the only eternal and perfect human to this day who is still in glory. 
He then pours his spirit out, like you studied last week. So let's begin our passage today after Stephen testifies that Christ and is killed as a result of it. Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 8. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And when the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip, when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them. And many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. Our Lord and God, we thank you that you've given us your word. We thank you that we can read these words that both describe what happened, but also prescribe for us the way the church should live and be. Add to it to our lives by your spirit this morning, in and through Christ, whose name we pray. Amen. I'm sure you've noticed, but probably not thought about it, is an organ about the size of your fist is what actually keeps you alive. The heart actually takes 2,000 gallons of blood a day and pumps it through 60,000 miles of vessels. And yet, it's also the leading cause of death when it goes wrong. One out of every four deaths in America today is heart-related. That's over 600,000 for those of you who didn't take calculus like myself. That's very interesting, isn't it? This vital, important peace of humanity and of the world is also the very thing that can destroy and kill us. It's a lot like the church. This vital organ, this vital mechanism, this vital institution, and yet life-giving is what God has given to bring life to the world, and yet oftentimes it's pathological. It's the very thing that that breaks us down. And just like the heart, the church has a certain rhythm to it. The heart has the, both the diastolic and the systolic rhythm. The diastolic brings it in. The systolic sends, sends it out. And so we have greater exercise to try to promote that. We try to decrease cholesterol, because not just do we need the rhythm, rhythm, we need also substance. The blood has to be the right consistency, have the right substance to it. And the effect of that is body health. In the same way, God has created his church to function with certain vital norms of life. 
And so as we look at this passage, again, as I mentioned, or I guess I was in prayer, that this describes what was happening, but we'll see that it's a, actually a rhythm as well as a substance with effects that are pertinent to us today and are actually signs to show us that the church is actually functioning as the church is called to function. So consider first with me uh, the rhythm. The rhythm we read about here is this gathered in and this scattered. The rhythm of in and out. And just as blood comes in and then is pumped back out, it's nourished, it's nourishing. It's gaining, it's gaining the materials, the oxygen, the protein, everything else that's needed it's, as it gathers in, and then it's sending out to bring life to the whole body, and indeed, in the case of the church, the world. John Calvin says it this way, By the wonderful providence of God, the scattering abroad of the faithful brings many into the unity of the faith. And yet, the heart can become diseased. If the heart has no in, no capacity to draw in, it's typically, typically because the walls of the heart have been hardened, have gotten thick, and uh, the substance, therefore, is destroyed. And we typically call that respiratory failure. On the other hand, if there's no out, if the pump is not working or not giving enough, it's just light, and the valves aren't working right, and the blood begins to back up and things like that, typically we have some sort of heart failure. Well, the church, again, is no different. In the church, there's oftentimes no in. In other words, the walls are thick. The blood doesn't get in. The world and the people don't come in. And so it's only the initiated who are allowed to be in it. And only if you know the right language and the right theories of education and the right wording and the right ways of doing church are you allowed in. In fact, it can become more exclusive than Augusta National Country Club, which is quite exclusive. On the other hand, in the church, there's sometimes no out. There's maybe an in, but there's no out. And the way that would look is like a huddle. And sometimes we call that a holy huddle, although, quite honestly, it's not holy at all. And so we gather together, and as a result, there's no going out. Some of you may have seen a football game before. That's American football. And a huddle is part of the game. And 11 men come into a huddle, and they, go, they talk, and they have great plans, and they talk about a lot of important things, they kind of cheer each other on, and they do it some more. And they just stay in there. And you're thinking to yourself, why did I spend $65 to come watch these guys stand in a huddle together? Well, there's, pun intended, no impact. You want to see something happen. You want to see a going out and a war and fighting and, and combat in a very loving Christian type of way, of course. But it's not any different than the church sometimes, is it? We huddle up and we don't even know. Even if we wanted to go out, we sometimes don't even know what to do. What do we say? What do we, 
How do we act? What do we do? On one side, we say, you can't get in. On the other side, we say, we won't go out. And then we end up dividing churches into those that are outward or missional and churches that are inward or doctrinal. And this passage tells us that we are living in folly and sin if we fall into that trap. The rhythm is both an in and an out. It's interesting, too, that this word for scattered is an agricultural term. It's for seed that's being sown and sent out into the fields with the idea of it growing a harvest and then the harvest being brought in. And then the next year we do it again. We send the seed out, we scatter it, we sow it, it produces a harvest, we bring it in. Do you see that? That's fascinating. That the very same word that's used for that agricultural purpose is also used for what's going on with the church at this point in history. Again, incoming, outgoing, gathering, scattering. Tertullian, one of the early church fathers, says it this way, that the blood of the saints is the seed of the church. That the blood being spilled by Stephen is actually the seed that begins to produce a harvest of the church coming in. One of the ways this is important for us to wrestle with is that in many ways, the greatest blockade, the greatest barrier, and one of the worst things that can happen for the spreading of the good news of Christ is our own comfort and success. And walking in here this morning, I thought, this place is beautiful. This is like Mitford. And that may be the very thing that keeps us from going out. You see that? And as these people go out, though, what, what are they doing? Is this your picture, what I'm about to describe, of the first and most powerful evangelist? We're running. Why are you running? Because they killed Stephen. Who killed Stephen? The religious guys. They killed Stephen. Why did the religious guys kill Stephen? Because he said that Jesus rose from the dead. What? They said Jesus rose from the dead. And they killed him for that? Yes. And that's why you're running? Yes. Do you believe Jesus rose from the dead? Yes. You do? Yes. Why? Because he showed up and talked to us afterwards. He, he ate with us. He showed up to hundreds upon hundreds. And then he blessed us as he went back to glory. Really? Yes. Okay, we'll run with you. That's that powerful evangelist right there. Do you see what they're saying? It's not about them at all. It's about the risen Lord, who Stephen saw as he stand there, stood there being executed. And what was the message that Philip brought? What was the, the substance of this heart? And the substance, we're told, was the gospel. In fact, the words there in verses 4 and 5, when it says that they preached the word and they proclaimed to them the Christ, that same word is, that word is euangelion. 
That's Greek. And it comes, the derivative of that in our language, can you guess what it is? Evangelism. But quite literally, it means they're gospeling. Like if you translate it literally, it means they're gospeling. And here's what that means. As they go, they're talking about this thing. And this thing is the Word and this Christ. The word gospel actually was hijacked by Christians. We hear it in Christian circles and in churches today, but it was actually hijacked from the world. And and here's what it meant. It was the good news, the heralding of a decree passed by a king or a feudal lord that had ongoing positive implications. That something had happened in time, space, and history that was decreed by a king and brought into the reality of the world, and then the herald would take it out and say things like, every peasant is now allowed to have one acreage of farmland. And the peasants would say, hooray! And all the people were happy. And it would never be reversed because the king or the feudal lord had decreed it to be so. And so the early followers of Jesus said, that's what happened. That's what we're talking about. That the God of all gods decreed that this is the way he's going to do it. He will send that one and he will gather his own. And there's a way that's going to happen. The word is Christ. Again, Calvin says it this way. The sum of the gospel, the whole complete sum of the gospel is contained in one word, Christ. And then later the writer, speaking of Luke here, joins the kingdom of God and the name of Christ together, but it is only because we obtain this goodness through Christ that it is ours. Now, notice for a second with me too, who is taking this substance, this good news, this word to the people? Well, it's Philip, who's taking it from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria now, and he's going to the ends of the earth. But notice this, it's not the apostles. The apostles are staying back in Jerusalem. It's everybody else who's scattered. In other words, the professional Christians, the pastors, the preachers are not the ones who are doing this. It's the lay people who are doing this. They're going out and they're proclaiming the Christ. They're proclaiming the gospel. They're gospeling. You see that? And that's the word that's going out. And to whom is it going? Samaritans. Samaritans and Jews hate one another. As that woman at the well informed Jesus, Jews do not associate with Samaritans. And the reason why is because the Jewish people believe the Samaritans to be heretical, half-breed mongrels. The Jews look for a Messiah. The Samaritans look for a Tahib which was a restorer. And so as one writer puts it, the Samaritans have been looking for a tahib or a restorer who will herald the day. Now they meet a herald who preaches that the tahib has already come and the signs of that restoration can be experienced even now. So not only do you have this heralding, this gospeling, these words of the kingdom of God breaking in, through Jesus Christ. But now we also have these deeds or these works or 
as we're called, it's called here, signs about that. In fact, in verse 6, you can recognize it when it says the words and deeds go together because they both heard and saw what was going on. Now, we'd be remiss not to at least allude to the types of signs that are going on because they're quite extraordinary. They're quite unusual, which is just the point. They're unusual. These are not meant to be the norm, and yet, almost anywhere you see the gospel advancing into areas, whenever you see Christ being proclaimed and preached in areas of the world throughout every generation, these signs accompany the inbreaking of the gospel. And the reason why is the gospel, as Calvin said earlier, is always about the kingdom coming. And so it authenticates, it validates the inbreaking of the kingdom. You see, one day there will be no more sin. One day there will be no more death. One day there will be no more deafness or cancer or people being mute or lame. And so the real age, the age to come, is merely in Christ breaking in. It's not the norm yet. It will be one day fully. But right now, what you begin to see is these inbreakings of both word and deeds going together. A few weeks back, my son and I were on the front porch in the morning on a Saturday. We looked up. There was smoke coming up. He's like, hey, is that a fire, Dad? I'm like, I don't think, oh, I think it's steam. You know, here's the dad who knows everything. I mean, after all, it's uh, summer, it's late spring. Uh, that's probably steam coming from something. And he goes, Dad, the uh, white smoke is turning black. And then we heard sirens. You see what happened was we both heard and saw. And then when we ran around the corner, sure enough, his house was just engulfed in fire. It takes that. It takes both words and deeds. In fact, if you have words but no deeds, you get very little interest. If you have deeds but no words, same thing. In fact, words without deeds is what we might call dead orthodoxy. Orthodoxy, straight doctrine, right doctrine, but it's dead because there's nothing going on with it outward. On the other hand, if you have works but no words to go with it, well, you just call that social action. Nothing Christian about that. But when you have words and deeds blend together, coming together as one, then you have gospel Christianity. And the world changes when those things come together. What's the effect of this? Both then and now, here's the effect. Here's what we can expect to see with a healthy rhythm as well as healthy substance. We begin to see this. We have an effect, or maybe more appropriately, even an affect of, first of all, verse 7, healing. You see that? When words and deeds go together, you have a healing that takes place. That word healing, as you might guess from this passage even, is it's a very holistic idea. It's, it's physical, spiritual, psychological, social. There's a breaking in of the rightness of things, of the healing of things. But not only that, the effect of that in verse 8 is there's much joy. <laughs> there's much joy in that city. And it's very interesting, the word joy 
has a great overlap with the word grace. They have the same root. And grace means something undeserved, a delight that's undeserved comes upon someone. When a delight that's undeserved comes upon you, when it comes upon me, what's the outworking of that? Joy. And some of you have experienced that. When the Lord Jesus Christ comes and he forgives your sin, and it's not based on anything that we've done, it's based solely on what he's done for us, and that you embrace that, even more actually appropriately is you've been embraced by that, what's the result? Joy. When do you and I go flat and feel joyless and hopeless and cynical? When we're not being embraced by it. When we're sleepy, like our pastor referred to earlier. And the waking up is to come back and turn away from ourselves and to turn towards the one who makes all this a reality. In the early pages of the Bible, God says, begins to say, I'm the Lord your God. I'm the Lord your God. I'm Yahweh your God. I'm the Lord your God. And then all of a sudden, when his people are delivered out of Egypt, they're wandering around the desert, they're all, they all need better hydration than they're getting. In fact, they're all dying because they have no water. And they come to this water hole, and the water's poisonous and sour. And all of a sudden, here's what God says. I am the Lord your healer. Not just the Lord your God. I'm the Lord your healer. And yet the final healer, the final word, the penultimate work of God is the person Jesus Christ. All these are possible not only then, but to us now because the healer has come. The full final word. The one who alone was sent. The one who alone was gathered in perfect harmony with God the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit in perfect unity together and love for all, was sent from a place of total beauty and perfection into a world characterized by brokenness and corruption and sin and death. That's quite ascending. But why did it happen? So that he might bring many sons and daughters to glory with him. In fact, the very pattern, the rhythm that he puts in us through his spirit today is the very thing that he went to first. And he didn't just come to a world broken. He went to the very depths of sin and hell and death to rescue his people and to experience it himself for us. So that now, when he comes back and reigns and rules forever, we are with him. We're hidden in him. We're his beloved. And it comes by faith and actually believing he came back from the dead. Really? You believe that? Yes, I do. For some of us today here, that's the issue. What do you believe? What do you think? What do you embrace and what has embraced you? Is that reality true? Because when it does become true, when it does become something you know and rely on, do you know what begins to happen? It'll change the way you think about everything. I'm seeing that happen in my life every day more and more. 
and I wish it were more, and I wish it was sooner. But like Philip, you begin the way to change the way you look at Samaritans. And all of us have Samaritans. In fact, some of us, indeed all of us, are Samaritans that Jesus came to. You stop feeling superiority of yourself over others because instead of having to justify yourself, you've been justified by another. Isn't that freeing? That you no longer have to defend yourself because you've been defended by the one who is the great arm of God? And yet none of us is beyond the need or the reach of God's goodness to us in Jesus Christ. And what he does when this happens, when he comes as both the scattered and the gathered, the sent and the coming back in, and he comes in with the fullness of being the word of God and of being the work of God, he begins to bring healing and he begins to bring joy to cities like ours. Right now, Nashville is 1.8 million people. The greater Nashville area is 1.8 million people. 75% of that 1.8 million people are unchurched. In other words, the 700 churches in Nashville are not reaching 75% of our city. That's part of what happened to change some friends and my lives to begin to say, what would it look like to partner up with both a certain rhythm as well as a certain substance to train men and women who are both church planners and who are in the marketplace to go into the six major spheres of Nashville to see God restore all things to himself through Christ. That's the ministry that we've been a part of, that you've been supporting. And we are so thankful to see it beginning, small steps, but getting a little traction. This is our calling, brothers and sisters. This is the normal, vital norm of the heart of the church. Jesus is the head, but he calls us in this heart to function both outward and inward. In both words and deeds. And as a way of measuring the fruit of that to see both healing in every way as well as joy in our city. Let's pray together. Lord, left to ourselves, these words are at best inspiring. But brought to us through Jesus, and poured into our lives and heart by the Holy Spirit. We worship, we praise, we come in, we go out, we seek your nourishing, and we seek to nourish through the words and works that Christ has accomplished on our behalf. As we pray in his name, amen.